Welcome, everyone, to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson, and joining me today is Alex. Hey there. Troy. What's up, everyone? And Tom. Hello. You can give us your thoughts, responses, tirades, and corrections by leaving a voicemail on our Book Nerds hotline. The number is 1-978-255-3404. So to kick things off, we are going to be talking about our gym woes in this time of pandemic in which we have all become massive shrimps over the two months of being denied the vital life force that is lifting. So um, uh, what have your struggles been in terms of uh, picking things up and putting them down? I mean, the first, honestly, the first like three weeks of the situation, I was so like stressed out and annoyed about having to go on work. I just didn't even, like, I didn't think about it too much. You know what I mean? My mind was too preoccupied with everything else going on because at that the time, the coronavirus seemed kind of scary. Um, but uh, I, last week, my gym let me go in and take a barbell and 400 pounds of weight. Hell yeah. Uh, and bring it home. So I had been lifting on my porch and um, I was basically went hard two days in a row just because I was excited to get back. And I've never had the muscle soreness I have. Um, I have like the muscle soreness you get from working out, but in my hands and in my forearms, like and then the legs and everything from squatting. But like the hand muscle soreness is totally new to me. And it's honestly, it's really, it doesn't feel good. That sucks dick, dude. I'm, I, I'm just like totally, I haven't worked out since the, you know, since the shutdown happened and uh, it's going to be, I am not excited about the first two weeks of lifting, you know, cause I'm going to be completely fucked up. Um, cause I used to have really bad muscle soreness in my legs um, for a long time when I was doing like heavy squats and, you know, this amount of time off is just going to bring all of that back. It eventually went away after I started lifting for like six months pretty regularly um but yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be horrible <laughs> yep are you going right back to are you trying to just build up your uh maxes again or what's your strategy i mean so i was doing a bodybuilding strategy um before the pandemic happened and i'll probably go back to that but in a somewhat modified form for you know like my own sanity because like the thing is is i enjoy lifting in like the act itself and so if me lifting is not enjoyable then i don't really want to do it and so i definitely want to do something that's a little bit more manageable to ease me back into the program rather than just being like i need to make up all this lost ground let me go completely fucking you know ham or whatever i think it's like psychologically damaging to like jump right back in and be like chasing numbers with lifts like right before the coronavirus happened, I was like at the right at the end of a strength phase and it was sick. I was hitting PRs. And I think to get back and to be, you know, doing lots of like heavy singles, I think it'd be depressing because the number is going to be so much lower, like right off the bat. Um, I'm going to go back whenever I get to weights doing, I remember in high school, we would like in, after football off season, it would be every, I think it was like every other week, there was one day in the weight room where you would just do like the bar and you would just do it to exhaustion, just do it like a million times. And then you do that for every exercise and then you go back and then do it with like tens on either side. And it's just like, you're supposed to completely exhaust yourself. And I think that's a, that's how I'm going to start out anyway, is go for the, yeah. That's kind of like bodybuilding training. Hmm. I mean, it's really just like absolutely roasting yourself. 
I'm just like not nearly as strong as y'all. <laughs> My numbers slash reps are not going to be nearly as high. But the thing is, though, is that I hate that. I hate doing reps. Like the bodybuilding stuff, the bodybuilding program I did, you know, it was um, there were some exercises that were 20 reps, right? But the most, you know, on average was 15. And I can do 15 reps. But if you want me to do 50 motherfucking reps, I mean, that's no fun. There's no fun to that. If you're doing like five heavy, you know, like five heavy reps, that's fun to do, you know, like you're lifting something heavy. It kind of feels good to do it. But like this, like sustained, like rep lifting, I just don't fucking get. It, honestly, just like over 12 reps, I think you're, you're diminishing returns, like, or what you, whatever, you know, you have real, real diminishing returns. Like eventually you're, you're going to start having shitty form and like, you know, risking yourself or like screwing something up. Yeah, it's the same kind of idea like when you do um when you're constantly going for one rep maxes, right? Like you know, you're trying to you're trying to squeeze shit out all the time and that's not helpful either, you know. I'm not one of those people who's like never do your one rep max because you're always going to be grinding it out kind of thing, right? Especially if you're young. You know what I mean? Like the chances of you actually hurting yourself are not insubstantial but pretty low. Um and yeah, I mean, you should, you know, if you want to figure out how much fucking shit you can pick up off the ground or squat or whatever, right? That's good. But, um, but yeah, I, it seems to me, at least from, you know, my completely amateur point of view that, you know, trying to get between like 10 and 20 sets per muscle group, um, a week and then, um, trying to keep those set numbers somewhere between depending on how isolated the the uh, exercise is somewhere between um you know five and 20 per per uh set is you know more or less sufficient to do what you want to do unless you want to be either a world-class bodybuilder or a world-class powerlifter which i don't want to be either of those things and those guys get to take steroids also, dude, you want to live past sixty. Like they're gonna, their bodies are just gonna implode when they stop. Troy, don't put words in my mouth. Okay, <laughs> I don't want to live past anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm more in like Troy's boat of things. I kind of had a this whole coronavirus thing has completely screwed up my entire plan, and I really started getting to the gym four or five, six times a week for I'd say four weeks before the gym shut down. And I was in the phase of like the not fun part where I was cutting a lot of extra body fat and I was starting to just tone my muscles a little bit and like prep to do heavier lifting in like lower reps um, and get to what I consider the fun part of lifting. But I didn't even get to that point. By the time I had cut everything I wanted to and was about to start a regiment to start really upping weight and really start working on specific muscle groups. The gym's closed down and I'm at a complete standstill. I've probably gone backwards at this point. It's going to take another two, three weeks of gear up just to get into a regimen that gets me to where I want to be. So I'm a long ways off. Well, if anyone wants to come lift on my porch, offer is a, it's a real it's a real offer. It's pretty nice to lift outside. I mean, you will get laughed at by children, I hear. So <laughs> yeah, kids were watching me um, snatch for like the first time in what two months, and I, I was like. It was horrible. Like, it, you know what I, I just felt so weak, and I was, like, groaning and moaning. And then should have yeeted one of the discs at him. I, yeah, you know what? I should have done. I should have defended my property from the children. <laughs> just pick up one of the discs and, like, yeah, shot put it over to them. 
<laughs> no, you should get your shotgun. You know what I mean? They're they're trespassing. Damn, there's no property. strength in that. You got to show off your strength. He has to hurt his wounded pride. He's got to throw the disc at him and show what he still has. <laughs> and flex afterwards when they're on the <laughs> ground. Yeah. Look at you, you fucking stupid child bitch. You don't got shit on me. I'm stronger than any baby. <laughs> it's true. I am stronger than any baby. I, you know what? I mean, I say that about you all the time, dude. I'm like, that dude, he can lift more than, you know, than any toddler out there. Dude, just the facts. Straight fact. Nothing makes you feel better than that. <laughs> if you ever down on yourself, just go to sleep knowing that you can lift more than any three to five year old. <laughs> <laughs> Once we hit six, though, it's a dangerous territory. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Serious competition starts flowing in. <laughs> Yeah, that's when they start taking steroids, you know? Dude, just imagine the, yeah. the Mountains kid. I just know him as the Mountain. His real name's Bjorn something. Oh, Half Strongest Thor? man. Yeah, Half Thor. Yeah, Half Thor, yeah. Yeah, man. Just imagine his children. He's got one on the way. Yeah. He knocked up his... Or maybe he has kids already. I know he knocked... His girlfriend's pregnant, though. That does the kid just be... come out ripped? Like, does the kid just come <laughs> out, like, six-pack, giant biceps... Like, starts just deadlifting his mom. Like, <laughs> it'll be a 14, 15 pound baby. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, you that know, poor woman. for real, dude. Um, there was a uh, Instagram post, I think like a year ago, where um, Thor, Half Thor was and his wife were invited to the UAE for a weightlifting competition. And like, they, like, they had first class seating to the UAE. And like, he, barely fit into that thing like he looked cramped and i'm just imagining half thor and coach on <laughs> like like it's just like one of his thighs would take up the whole fucking seat he's like seven feet tall i wonder 40 pounds i wonder what like his measurement from shoulder to shoulder is like if you just took that like if you're just standing straight up or sitting in a seat like how broad is this man he might i can't i don't know like five feet is that normal i don't even know I can't imagine, like, like I'm sitting here. Can't be five feet, yeah. Well, I'm sitting here in, like, a regular, like, desk chair, and I gotta think he's gotta be, like, three times the size of me in width. I would imagine two at least. So, like, how would he sit in a normal chair? God forbid. Motherfucker. Any, like, place. His chest is 63 inches. That's just. 63 inches! Damn. His chest, chest is, is as tall over five, five feet. <laughs> you were you were under, Tom. <laughs> oh, my Holy God. Holy shit. That's, That's wild. I mean, professional basketball players and football players, they have like extra king beds made for them because they're too, they're just too wide and too tall for the beds. So they like have to have them custom made. God damn. That's fucked up, dude. People shouldn't be made that way. I don't think I want that. I'll be honest. I'm fine with being like above average. Like if I could be six feet, six foot two, you know, built. 225 to 250 that would be great i don't think i want to be that big i don't i honestly don't 225 sounds... to 250 do you think you're gonna hit that weight Tom? oh no god no no i'm just saying like if i could like envision myself and like what i would envision being peak physical condition if i could be three inches taller at like six foot three and if i could be 250 pounds shredded i'd be like that's pretty nice but being that big 63 inch chest like just being that large, I don't think I actually want that. I mean, that's just <laughs> inconvenient for everyday life in all aspects. 
Tom, I got little man dreams. I'm not even, I'm not worried about six foot three. I just want to be six foot. <laughs> That's enough <laughs> for me. Same. Aren't you six foot, Alex? No? <laughs> no, I'm 5'11 and a half. Oh, he's a manly, all, of his date, all of his dates. That yeah, man, I got, oh, yeah, I got called out on a, on a OK Cupid date or a Bumble date. Um, because you, you know, it says like ask your height or whatever. So I put six feet because I'm five eleven and a half, and I didn't think that was like nefarious. I wasn't doing it to be sketchy. I really wasn't. I don't really think I thought about it. But on the, the first OK Cupid date I went on, I got called out, and she said, "You're not really six feet, are you? You just rounded up so girls will date you." Um, Whoa, <laughs> that's harsh. Yeah, wow. I, she said it kind of lightheartedly. I don't think she was really. Uh, I don't think she cared. She liked me, but um, yeah. <laughs> No, but I mean, that's like close enough. I mean, I don't know. I Dude, that's what I thought. And then she said, I... no, you're rounding up. You can't round up. Why can't you wow. round up? Apparently, what, apparently what am I going to put? Round up. You got to round down. That's the humble move. Oh, hell no. <laughs> you got to round down. Jeez, I wonder, like, I don't know. I, the last time I went to a doctor, I didn't even pay attention or anything. And like, it's been a while. So, I, I mean, I was I was at one point six feet, but maybe they rounded up. I'd have to measure myself. Now I'm feeling self-conscious. Now I feel like I got to double I don't think you're, Tom, you're, lucky I don't you're married, like Tom. You don't have to worry yeah. about this stuff, but it's a fucking well, battlefield out here. <laughs> unless, Val, unless Val's going to start measuring you, dude. That would be, that's, that's tough. Get beat out by some guy who's like six feet and a quarter. And he's like, I can round down and still be six feet. <laughs> yeah. Coming to steal your girl. Yeah. He's got centimeters on you. Oh, God. Yeah, I told Chloe when I first met her that I was five ten. That's not true. That's not nah, a dude. No, nah, dude, you got Sam. You and I are in the same boat. We got to round up to five nine, dude. Like that's where I'm at. Yeah. Wait a minute. How exactly. tall are you guys? Um, between five seven and five eight. I'm between oh. five eight and five nine, so I just round up to five nine. Yeah. Okay. If I'm wearing shoes, I'm five nine anyway, and I'm you know normally wearing shoes. So. Right, and then if you have boots, you're basically six feet. Pretty much, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just gotta, yeah. just gotta order some elevator boots. Yeah, there you go. boots with like three sets of wool stockings. <laughs> that little extra height on the inside. Gonna make it really you awkward know... though when you go back to the apartment and you're trying to undress, trying to get off all your wool socks, and you can't get your elevator boots off. <laughs> it's really hard being a man lit. I will say, you know. I didn't even know. Like I was just in blissful ignorance until like two years ago i was like oh wow i uh yeah oh, i guess it is what it is <laughs> i don't think people i don't think i don't know i think it's more of an online thing than a real thing i do think that and i also think like at least in my experience like i don't see any difference or i haven't like personally talked to anybody who sees a difference between like like i'd say like five six is like the cutoff you notice when a guy is shorter than five six you just, oh yeah, he has legit man, little man syndrome at that. Yeah, point. you you visually see it. Their mannerisms are different. They behave differently. Like that's just a short guy, you know. No different than like not that you know I want to go down this rabbit hole, but you know if, if there's a woman who's six foot two, like you notice that. I mean, it's just not like it's not something you ignore. But in between, like if you're a guy and you're between five seven and six feet, it's pretty much all the same. I don't think anybody treats it any different in the real world. I mean, that's really what a manlet would say anyway, you know, how to justify. <laughs> you're really, a, you're you're betraying your fellow short kings is kind of where I'm going with it. Well, these people can't even see me. For all they know, I'm five foot two, and I'm just trying to like, <laughs> lay myself up. <laughs> I just want that big dick energy that like Tom Cruise has, where he's always dating a woman that's like three inches taller than him. And it's just like, 
doesn't even care. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to pull it off. Like, no, I don't really want to. But to be able to pull it off, it's like, damn, dude. Like, good for you. I don't think Tom Cruise is really that invested in his relationships. <laughs> only, in, <laughs> only in Scientology. Yeah. Dude, he's going to the moon. Or not the moon. He's going to the International Space Station to film an action movie. Because he's nuts. That's sick. Fuck yeah, dude. I want to go to the International Space Station. Me too. Tom Cruise is five foot seven. So, I mean, he's in that range still. But he does, he in, in the range. photos and everything, he does look... Um, he looks good, even though like a woman next to him is significantly tall. And he's a psychopath, and he is going to go to the International Space Station to film. So, but but Danny DeVito is four foot ten. <laughs> yeah, he's the man, and that's who we really want to be. And dude, Danny DeVito definitely fucks. <laughs> yeah, he's got a wife. She's cool. Yeah, his life is better than ours. Oh, right, for much sure. Better. So much better. His life is probably better than Tom Cruise's too, because he's not dealing with a lot of psychological trauma or whatever's going on with him yeah not with the you know the hubbard ideology yeah he's going to the space station with uh that guy miskovich's wife or whatever (laughs) oh shit well danny devito is just an ode to show you that height really doesn't matter we all aspire to be him and it doesn't matter how tall he is I mean, right. okay, so there's little man syndrome when you're under 5'6", but once you get under 5 foot, then you start getting into, like, the little sprinkle of magic just, like, super fat people get, and they're just funny. <laughs> and it's like, if there's somebody that's, like, a quasi-dwarf, it's like, they just have comedic effect on people. And, like, Danny DeVito's hilarious, and part of it is his stature. And it just, like, he works with it, he rolls with it, and he owns it. It's like, I don't know. It's just about it's about the uh, the uh, confidence, the the charisma. I think it has more to do with anything than anything. Yeah, charisma for sure. It's all that's what it's all about at the end of the day. I agree with that, but I do like the term a little sprinkle of magic. I mean, just that little thing. Like <laughs> once you drop below that five foot threshold, it's like, oh wow, there it is. That little sprinkle of magic. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they become fucking leprechauns. You know? <laughs> oh Jesus. Are, are you directly shaking a drink into the microphone? Hell no, I would <laughs> never. <laughs> <sighs> well, are we going to jump into the book? No, no, no. We don't do books on this podcast. I don't know why you're under that impression. Wrong podcast. Shit. That's my yeah, other yeah. my other podcast. This is the um, this is the uh, penetration podcast. That's that's what we do here. Oh, <laughs> I was unaware. <laughs> So we talk about, you know, bullet penetration, we talk about uh, a penile in penetration, we talk about market penetration. penetration. Market penetration. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the important ones. Hell yeah, dude. All right, no, psych, we're actually a book podcast. All right. So <laughs> this week, we're discussing the second half of We by Yevgeny Zamyatin. Um, it's inspired its own particular and popular genre, as we discussed last week, last week, which includes Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, George Orwell's 1984, Kurt Vonnegut's Player Piano, and Ayn Rand's Anthem. What binds this genre together is its focus on a citizen of a feared future who discovers what their society that their society is not as it seems and ends up resisting that uh, that society. So, for the second half of the book. I personally found myself enjoying it, rather, I found myself enjoying Zemyatin's beautiful use of language more than his modern haphazard plot. He utilizes the power of a first-person narrator to great effect. 
For instance, in this passage, when D503 reflects on this relationship to I330, quote, apparently I am no longer a phagocyte which uh, quietly, in a businesslike way, devours microbes, microbes with freckled faces and blue temples. Apparently I am myself a microbe, and she too, I330, is a microbe, a wonderful, diabolical microbe. It is quite possible that there are all, already thousands of such microbes among us, still pretending to be phagocytes, as I pretend. What if today's accident, although in itself not important, is only a beginning, only the first meteorite of a shower of burning and thundering stones which the infinite may have poured out upon our glass paradise? Zemyatin does us a favor in the second half by continuing the psychological torture of D-503 up to the very end, which is consistently picked up in the plots of the novels influenced by Wee. D-503 remains on the fence, vacillating between the United States and the rebellious organization called the MIFI, and this is expressed through his love affair with I-330. The question really is of this novel, will he abandon what he knows and feels comfortable with for the sake of what he loves but does not understand? So, I wanted to kick things off, um, you know, sort of with the general impressions of the second half and end of the novel. So um, we'll do a little roundtable here. So, Troy, give us your impressions of the second half and end of this novel. I liked the second half, or I enjoyed it in, uh, much more than the first half, just because the plot picks up right around where we stopped. Um, stuff is actually happening in the one state. There's more internal development for D-503. I was irritated as I was reading because I was like, what the hell is going on? Because he'll things will happen and then all of a sudden he's back in the one state or it will just like cut off randomly in the middle. Uh, so that kind of annoyed me while I was reading. But then at the end, I changed my mind because I was like, you know what? I think this is more like a metamorphosis thing where he's kind of losing it. So I can kind of appreciate it. But I agree with you, Sam, that the plot's a little uh, haphazard. There's there's some good stuff in it though. I I like that it ends. It's like dark but weirdly optimistic. Um, it's super Russian, which I'll come back to later. But overall, I enjoyed this much more, and I actually now do like the book based on the ending. Excellent, excellent. All right, uh, Tom, you're up next. Um, yeah. So I mean, in the second half, I I guess I'm torn because I thought it was a little bit more understandable in the first half of the book it seemed a little bit more streamlined i could follow the storyline better the character development seemed pretty good the flip side is that in the second half is when all the action happens that's when all the events start taking place that's where you start to really see what's like progressing with this whole relationship with i330 and like the the group that's behind it and everything that they're planning and what his role in it is you start to you kind of had a feeling throughout the whole story, but you start to really realize that he was specifically targeted because he's the builder of the integral. You know, he is, you know, the person that they need to get at and, and bring to their side. So a lot of things happen in the second half. And I like that, but to Troy's point, it's, it was at sometimes very difficult to follow and jumped from place to place so erratically that I found myself having to like regather my thoughts and like reread certain things just to keep up with what was happening, which could be a little frustrating. Um, but overall, the second half, I liked it a lot. There was a lot of things that happened. I liked the way that it ended. Um, it had the the typical, like, leaving you wondering 
you know, what exactly is happening around him, what is changing in the society. You never really get answers to certain questions, which I personally like in a lot of ways. So I liked it, um, but it just, it was a lot more haphazard than the first half. And that at certain points was fresh. But other than that, I liked it a lot. Agreed. Um, so I'm going to go and give my impressions now because I don't want to monopolize the last word as I normally do. But um, so, I mean, really, the second half of this book, it I mean, it borderline read to me like uh, me trying to read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, like read like some sort of or like Ulysses, like anything James Joyce, right? Like this stream of consciousness, first person um, ac- action going on. And the unfortunate part about the second half was because not that the first person narrator in the first half, like the first half, it was that you could still get a really strong sense of what the plot was, right? But like the events, except for like some pretty, except for the very, very important ones, right? Like the election or the torturing of I-330, um, you you understood what was happening then, but it really kind of shifted into this very modern, um, you know, like uh, like almost stream of consciousness, right? It's supposed to be written as a journal, but um, it didn't come off that way, or it didn't come off very reflective. And if it did, it came up as the reflections of a madman. And that was my real only issue with this, is that I'm fine with that mode of writing, but um, it's something that I want to be prepared for because it's not, that isn't something I can just like, you know, normally I'm a pretty busy guy. I have to make like, you know, an hour sometime during the day to read this. And if it's that kind of writing, I have to mentally prepare to engage with something like that. I can't just read it like I would, you know, read any type of other novel that is not meant to, um, challenge my ability to comprehend what's going on. Um, so I enjoyed the book a lot, but it was, I guess it felt unpolished is really what I would say at the end of the day. Like, I think it has a lot of laudable qualities, um, but it just didn't ring that it didn't ring true to me that like this, this was fully revised and finished. Um, it would felt like the second half was written in like, you know, two days. And then, you know, obviously the the story behind this novel is that it gets banned by the Soviets and then smuggled out through Poland to England. And then it's, um, it's published there. So, you know, it's like maybe revision wasn't even possible in this case. I'm not sure. So Alex, what did you think? I mean, I definitely had kind of this, the same consensus that the three of you had um, regarding like the, the structure of it as this, like, jur- like as if it's journal entries, um, the vibe I kind of got was that like he had like these concepts that he wanted to convey, convey and like he had like central like ideas and themes he wanted to talk about. Like you could tell like uh, his concepts about like revolutions, like this idea that there is not going to be like the final revolution and this and him, him wanting to talk about infinity and all this stuff um, from like a kind of political perspective, I guess. I think he like had those in his mind before he started writing the book and then I think kind of failed to pull off pulling the plot around the ideas he had i think that was kind of like why i think it feels so disjointed and kind of incomplete especially like as the book gets away from him which i it almost feels like it does by the end um so i mean other than that you know you guys pretty much said 
my thoughts on it as well. I really liked it. By the end, I really had come around on it. Midway through, I was starting to feel like it was a little tedious because I didn't really like the, like, the structure of it where that it's supposed to be journal entries because they don't feel really like journal entries at all. Um, I don't know if you guys agree, but something about that, like every time I'd be reminded of that, I was, it was just like an element of the book that I felt was unnecessary and for some reason uh, detracted from like, I don't know, me actually getting engrossed in the book. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, there was a strong sense that the journal entries were very important in the beginning and then not so important later. And uh, I don't feel like, I feel like you should have leaned into one side or the other, which I, um, I would say, you know, I know we're going to get into this later because Troy, you mentioned in our, um, our Facebook uh, DM that, you know, you had some thoughts about Wee's relation to 1984, but I feel like 1984 is a much more polished version of Wee, right? Like it feels more intentional. Maybe you could even say more English in a way um, than the, uh, the, than its Russian counterpart. No, and I mean, just to like chime in real quick on something Alex said, because as I was reading it, I couldn't really put the words to it, but Alex said it really well was, the story kind of got away from it. It was just the way as I was going through it on the second half of the book, it was just the the points he was trying to make were there, but the importance of the journal entries and how they were written and the storyline behind it kind of got lost in just the, this is the event that happened. This is what I'm trying to say. This is what I have on my mind. And it just didn't seem like a through and through story at the end it felt really broken up and it just like alex said it just felt like the story as a whole got away from him and you could feel that as you were reading it yeah and alex you had mentioned a little bit earlier when we were uh texting that it's just he has so many things that he's trying to accomplish where it's like dystopia it's commentary on the czar czarist police on the soviet state on it's also the interval is a rocket i have when they were initially writing about it i didn't know what they meant and i thought it was like a space elevator but of course they wouldn't have even thought of that in the 19 teens and 20s but yeah there's just like too many things where he has some good philosophical points but yeah he doesn't tie them together too too well um so what did you guys you know like uh, like the the beffy right the the rebellious organization. What did you think of that? Did you think Zemyatin rendered it well? Um, and what did you think of the plot associated with the Mephi about um, commandeering the integral and uh, shooting themselves off into space? It didn't make any sense. Sorry, before we jump into that, did we ever find out what Mephi stands for? Did I miss that? Um, I don't, it's a, um, yeah, there was one line and it was about a particular, I think, um, Greek poem. Mephistopheles? Was... Is that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know who that is, though. That's what I assumed for some reason. I mean, if we research it, I'm sure we could figure it out, but it was not thoroughly explained in the story. There was one line, I promise you, there was one line in the book that that said what Mephi meant. Um, but yeah, Mephistopheles, it, but it was like an allusion to something that if, you know, you're a fucking affluent academic, you'll understand. But uh, we are not that. So Yeah, what a bunch of losers. You guys don't know who Mephistopheles is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we're never going to make it into, you know, the fucking Harvard choir or whatever. <laughs> 
I don't need to be around those pedos anyways. <laughs> yeah, you don't go to Comet Pizza, my friend. Yeah, exactly, my dude. No <laughs> skull and bones for us. <laughs> but uh the as like a the revolution revolutionaries, like they just kind of served a purpose to like exist, to be like something dangerous for him to be involved in and like a contrast to the state, but it was just completely unfleshed out. I I reread the sections about the rocket and I did not understand what it how they were going to destroy the wall with the rocket. They're just going to smash it into it. I thought they were going to blow up like when I first read it. I thought they were going to take the rocket and then like use the exhaust to destroy the whole city. Like it, yeah, it was not clearly laid out that destroying the wall was their goal. I thought that they were going to like go up into space and escape somewhere like maybe to another world and then just completely kill everybody in the one state with the few uh but yeah i i was lost as is the protagonist until he wakes up and there's just birds everywhere because the wall has been destroyed and birds apparently have all flocked in which i actually thought was cool um i did like that yeah. i thought him leaving and going out to see the the humans uh was cool and I almost, it almost like doesn't matter that the revolutionary people had no substance to their subplot, like in the big picture, so like a minor frustration. Yeah, a lot of the reviews I was reading is that even more so than a critique of a specific country or government, it's like a critique of industrial society since he'd been living in England for a few years before this. And just like they mentioned Taylorism a lot or Taylor as like a prophet or a god. And I know that that really bothered a lot of people. And I just remember learning about it in history class. And it's like in your manufacturing spot, you have X's on the ground where you stand. You have like X's on your machine where you turn and you're supposed to literally be mechanical. And I think he's kind of rebelling against that and just going to the primitivism or he's trying to lean into the primitivism of whoever these people are behind beyond the wall the yeah the hairy people that's their only distinguishing feature yeah i mean i don't know i just didn't see enough of either side of it when we're talking about the memphi or if we're talking about um you know any of just the sub characters and subgroups the guardians and all that i just i didn't feel like there was enough explanation about it i understand why it's being portrayed that way because he's in his own mind and he's experiencing his own things and He's slowly going crazy throughout the book because he thinks there's something wrong with him. He thinks he has a soul. But it just, in my opinion, it would have been nice if there was a little bit more there to just kind of explain it better, to give a little bit more context to who these people are and why they're there and like just a little bit more meat on it. It just, it felt too superficial in areas that I think would have enhanced the story. And it's hard too if there's just a uh, number or a letter, like, I agree with you, Tom. I for, I forgot who Q was for a while. The like woman that runs the front desk and has gross yellow skin. Like there was two, three chapters where she has pieces, and I was like, "Where the hell did this person come from? Who is this?" Right. And yeah, the side characters are not well developed. No, and I I think that the the you know like our desire to have the rebel forces fleshed out has a lot to do with how the Mephi impacted society right there were like posters up about them um they were causing like general social change right when um d503 goes uh, you know is walking through the city 
and he sees people having sex without the curtains, you know, closed, right? Like that's a general social change that is being egged on by the Mephi. And so they are a significant political actor in that sense. And yet they don't really have a um, defining characteristic besides the very short and narrow glimpses we get from D503. So I think that um, it's, you know, you kind of have to go on one side or the other. You either have to say that the Mephi are sort of this like political aberration in which they um, they are swiftly dealt with by the state, right? Like similar to how um, Orwell deals with uh, the the Trotsky-like character in uh, 1984, or you make them a real political threat in which the state is threatened. But because the well-doer kind of like, I mean, it's really hard for me to believe in this kind of, this totalitarian, you know, glass houses state that the Supreme Leader and his security service either both don't know about the Mephi, and then when they do know about it, um, need to interrogate D-503 for information. I mean, that just seems kind of absurd on its face. Um, So, yeah, I just feel like it was, it didn't come off to me as believable. I mean, the other thing I wasn't a huge fan of, and I don't know, maybe it was just the way that I read the book. So just by happenstance, I read the first 20 records of the book, and then I went back and kind of looked through it all in one sitting. And then I I did the second half the same way. And I don't know if it's just where we decided to like break it up and that I hadn't, you know, been in the right frame of mind, but it just seemed to go from zero to a hundred. It just seemed like there was a lot of explaining and you could really see where the, you know, D503 was coming from and the journey that he was taking and this entire relationship. And then when I started the second half of it, it was like, oh, all these things are happening. Now these posters are being put up. Now, you know, all this social change is happening. He's going beyond the wall. Like, all this crazy stuff is happening with very little explanation. And it just didn't seem like a very seamless transition. It didn't seem like it was it, it was accurately portrayed as how it would happen in the real world, at least in my mind. And, you know, like, amusingly, like, he spends 100 pages uh you know, it's just like 100 pages of exposition, basically, to set up the plot for what happens. And he really accomplishes, he conveys like nothing. Like, there's no real world building, I don't, I don't think. And there's only one character, I think O and uh, D are the only characters who are really are like developed at all, in terms that we have like, an understanding of their like, interior, like emotional lives. You don't get insight into I-330? No. Because she's lying. I don't think so. No, because she's just pretending. She feels like a she feels like a trope to me. Because she ends up just yeah. using him because he's the builder of the integral. Like, I, yeah, I agree with that. She's not a round character at all. Oh, at least because through the letter, you get to see part of like O and of R. Is that the the other friend who does R13. the poems? Yeah, who does the poems? But like with O, there's other things like her like wanting to be pregnant with his child, and yep. like even though it's illegally, like other things happen. And that was another yeah. frustrating thing for me with I three thirty was I understand that like they're using him to make this whole plot happen, but every time you think you're gonna learn something about her and there's gonna be some type of a conversation to explain something, it never ends up happening. It ends up being some break in the conversation, and then the record ends, and you move on to the next. Yeah, it's a really annoying way to structure your book. I thought O was the most well-developed of the side characters, because she yeah. 
doesn't want to go to I-330 because she's still her man. Um, but then she ends up changing. She's like, no, I love this child and I want to keep it. I don't care, whatever it is. But then that that plot line also just doesn't really go anywhere because he tells her, he like writes her a note. There's so much chaos going on and he's being followed. He's like, just go find her yourself. And then we just never hear about it again because it's it I think transition. Yeah, he says that she goes outside, right? I think it, like that's like there's like one sentence that says she gets out. Yeah, she tries to go to find d- her, but like what happens to her? That's the book I want. S- seriously, that would be like a sick sequel. Let's I would agree it, with friends. that. I would agree with that. I think that would be a very interesting. Like that's probably what I was most curious about. Was okay, you know, there's a line where. You know, uh, I-330 gets the note or says that she gets the note and that she's safe outside the wall. And, like, then what happens over there? That's never explained. It never goes anywhere. But I'd be curious to know. Mm. This um, this book, another book that we haven't mentioned, but we will now, that I've read that is, like, so obviously influenced by it, this book that it's, like, bizarre is The uh, a Possibility of an Island by Michelle Welbeck. It's like down to the journal entry format. Like it's bizarrely and uh, with uh, humans who are hairless and it's, you know, in a far future. But the end of the book has this epilogue where the guy basically goes beyond the walls of his life and explores the the world beyond the, you know, like hyper futuristic society. And it's like, it's, I don't know, it's like the best part of the entire book. And I, I, I wish that we got that for this book because it made the whole kind of frustrating book a lot more satisfying. Well, but I mean, the story of this book is a reconciling with the United States, not a freedom of uh, primitive humanity, you know? Well, it, I don't know that it's a reconciling with it. It's just showing that he was defeated. Well, it's a reconciling. I mean, he went and, and you know, he he knew how to get out. He knew D-503 knew how to, to not be in the wall. He knew how to get out. He just chose not to. He went, yeah, and he he psychologically submitted to the to the United States because he's because he was so upset about. Uh, he'd rather he psychologically submit to the state than to the uh, devious woman, right? Uh, he'd rather get lobotomized than be a simp, essentially. Which you know is noble in and of itself. <laughs> the I noble understand. Cause. Yeah, those fucking women, dude. <laughs> I do have like a question that has nothing to do with the story, but did did your records have like the chapters have titles to them that made absolutely no sense? Very yeah, very modern, very artistic. I was rolling my <laughs> eyes at every fucking chapter. There were top <laughs> topics associated, if that's what you mean. Yeah, I mean there were topic associated, but at a certain point, I would say halfway through the book, I just stopped even reading what the chapter title was. Yep. Because it was so loosely connected and it was like, you'd have to read through the record and then be like, okay, what thing applies to this thing? And that kind of, to me, is like an ode to how confusing the second half was, where it's just like, it was just all over the place. And I like a lot of the story, but I just think it it doesn't feel complete to me. It doesn't feel like Sam was saying is a polished work. And I just think those those chapter titles kind of play into that where it's like, here's just a bunch of words. Now read what I have to say. It, it could be translation that could be compounding the problem. So that, that was going to be my nope, question. It was not, it was not translation. <laughs> he fucking was a really good writer in English. And I believe he actually wrote this in English. Oh, okay. if not translated, it, translated it himself. So 
Well, my my translation is by a guy named uh, Simon or something. Okay, so maybe it was uh, there's an original version and then a version by him. But I remember because I mean he lived in England, so he know, knows true. how to write fucking English. Right. I think there is some translation. I mean, I just from like my introduction, it's the translator basically writing all this stuff about the whole origin of how the book was published and everything else. And uh, it goes in length to explain. So one thing I think is different about my version than yours is my version uh, uses the term one state, not United State, um, which I think is a translation difference. And then it also, I don't know what yours says, but like their uniforms, this one's translated as uni, Y-U-N-Y. And it sounds like other translations aren't that way. So I think there's some translation to it, but I don't think that has any bearing on the titles of the chapters of the records themselves. My Mine says UNIF, which is interesting, but I also have the one mm-hmm. state, not United State. Yeah, mine is one state too. Did you guys have Welldoer as well? Or what was your um, supreme leader called? The Benefactor. Uh, the the benefactor. benefactor. So I'm the only one with Welldoer. So we have like, translated my the, the well doer, yeah. That's awesome. so we have like four different translations. It's hilarious that. because I was watching an interview with Noam Chomsky, who Ugh. you know, because when I was looking around for uh, interviews about this book, apparently he mentioned it in one of his interviews. So you know, every website from fucking the Nation to Counterpunch was all over it. Um, but yeah, it was called the he called it the benefactor, and I'm like. But what, like, why did my translator choose well-doer? Like, literally, well-doer. Um, it feels so literal. That's, such a, poor, that's such a poor translation. Right. <laughs> oh, God. No, and, and just to the point of the translation, like, a huge part of the introduction was the person writing the introduction and how they translated it was talking about how they were listening to this radio broadcast, and they were in, I think, New York City. And they were listening to a um, a baseball game, and the announcer of the baseball game used the term uni, and he got like elated that like, oh, I used the right word in my translation, and he spelled it Y-U-N-Y, but this also uses benefactor, but it just shows, I think, in the translations how different certain things are, and well-doer is a very crude, literal translation. I think benefactor gives more... Um, I don't know, just gives a better feel to the book. I don't know if... I think even that one word makes the book sound different. If I read the whole thing as well-doer, I'd be like, okay, what am I reading? Speaking of, I did want to talk about when he meets the benefactor, because I felt like that was the emotional climax of the book, or at least the philosophical one, maybe not the emotional one. Uh, That chapter just struck me as like so, so Russian, where it's dark, existential, introspective, and then it just kind of like drops off and ends. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it reminded me of Dostoevsky <laughs> is also very moody in that way, where he'll just go on these little soliloquies about religion. Uh, all right, so yeah, the benefactor is talking to him, and then he says, let us talk like adults after the children have gone to bed. Let us say to the very end, I ask you, what did people from their very in- infancy pray for, dream about, long for? They long for someone to tell them once and for all the meaning of happiness, and then to bind them to it with a chain. What are we doing now, if not this very thing? The ancient dream of paradise, remember, those in paradise no longer have desires, no longer have no pity or love. They are only the blessed, and with their imagines excised, this is the only reason why they are blessed, angels, obedient slaves of God. 
And now at the very moment when we have already caught up with his dream, when we have seized to it so, he clenched his fist. If it had held a stone, it would have squeezed juice from it. When all that needed to be done was to skin the quarry and divide it into shares. At this very moment, you, you, and then it just ends. But I was like, oh god, that's such a good, like, hot take on tyranny <laughs> slash god and the divine. I like it. Yeah, dude, that was, I would say, um, that scene and then the election scene were probably the best, like, highlights from the rising action of this novel. Um, I was, I was taken aback by the, uh, the interview of the, well, or the benefactor, I should say, with, um, D503. Um, and, you know, like, especially in that passage, right, like, I have another passage here, um, which is something I wanted to bring up, which is, um, it's a quote in the ancient days the christians understood this feeling they are the only uh though very imperfect direct forerunners the greatness of the church of the united flock was well known to them they knew that resignation is virtue and pride a vice that we is from god i from the devil Mm. and you know from what you quoted troy and what i just said like there is especially in the second half of this book like strong christian illusions right that the united state is the the necessary result of a christian theology as well as industrial society and i feel like in most of the commentary i've read about we it basically ignores the theological element which i think is pretty heavy-handed in this in the second half of the novel here i think it is but i that's i guess what strikes me as it being super russian is that it's like dark and oppressive and but it's also extremely religious and it's just like that combo of factors is just yeah very russian but yeah sam what you had just read out of the book i also made note of that section that part struck me and i agree too that the election scene is the other like it was the most interesting point that and then i guess a third one would be when he's about to kill Q with a pipe. Those are the three like highlights of the second half for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tom, Alex, go ahead. I, I, yeah. no, I, I would have to agree with all that. I mean, I think those were really good, well-written sections of the book, and that kind of got me like grabbed back into the story. It just, I don't know, like even when he's meeting with the benefactor, the the issue that I always come back to is that I I can't really make sense of why it's happening the way it's happening like the way it's portrayed is that this benefactor knows what's going on and that he's questioning d503 and like enlightening him in a sense but if all that's happening why does it take four more records before he's been essentially lobotomized like it just doesn't seem linear in a lot of Mm -hmm. it definitely doesn't seem believable yeah in 1984 they change it up where it's like they're trying to get him to confess because the point is just to liquidate him after that, like confess your sin and then we'll kill you. But this isn't the same. Like they try to bring him back to society. So the benefactor really just brought him in to tell him that he was being used by a woman. It's like, couldn't you just told him that over the phone? Yeah. And it's like, you don't need the Supreme leader to tell you that, right? Like in 1984, it's like a, you know, a middle management security agent. You know, it's not, it's not the guy who interrogates him so no and there's the whole thing where like he goes in and he finally talks to s and figures out that s is part of this group and one of the comments that s makes is about him meeting with the benefactor and how it's this whole big ordeal and 
it's just like it's just not it doesn't seem to make sense with the storyline i mean i agree not to get off topic of what you guys were saying i agree with the the way it's written it is very russian and there's a ton of you know theological and christian things that are integrated into the storyline which a lot of those parts really enhanced it and made me interested in it but when i went from record to record like when you're reading from left to right through a story i just found myself constantly like okay this just doesn't make sense the way a story would go like we're just putting things together but do you think that that czarism itself right is kind of the reason why things are presented this way because i don't i don't actually buy like i think zimyatin is a pretty astute observer of the society he's around i mean he wrote this novel as almost you know not obviously as we're pointing out not an imp- a perfect representation of the way in which um history played out but certainly um a a fairly prescient one um but the you know when you think of something like a king right like the king is supposed to you know be the the representative of the law they're supposed to be the ultimate arbiter of of you know civil disputes um between their subjects um those kinds of things and so maybe the benefactor is playing the role of of a uh you know trying to be the role of a fair and just christian king as opposed to the you know totalitarian dictator that we are more familiar with i would agree i definitely see him as a czar more because when it, that uh, chapter or the uh, record that we both read from he is described as like you don't see his face it's just he's massive he's apparently like bigger than most people just a giant and but he also moves incredibly slowly and it's almost just like you imagine kind of like god on his throne where you don't see the face but it's just his hand movements and that definitely strikes me more as like the czar yeah i mean that and i think the other thing i kind of tried to remind myself is that it's not really accurately portrayed in my opinion by the narrator of the story but he is an important person in society he is you know the first builder he's the number one builder of the integral there's the whole scene where s comes in with the guardians and he's like hiding his manuscripts underneath his chair um you know he's sitting on them and he's writing down some gibberish about the benefactor and how um, I think it's Q says to him, like, do you know who this is? This is the builder of the integral. And he does have this um, this role in society that is a, probably a lot higher than a lot of other people. And you could, I guess, inference that he's being used as an example where the benefactor's meeting with him to basically demoralize him, make sure he knows everything he's done, tell him you're being used by this woman. You know, they only wanted you because you were the builder of the integral. And then after the fact, and the story doesn't like, you know, go into this at all, but if he has this lobotomy of a sense, he can become an image of like, oh, we had this person and they had these thoughts, but look at them now, because he is on that like upper echelon of society, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought about, but you're right. He is definitely separated from, he's in a much higher position than O or really any of the other characters. He's below the Guardians. Like secret police are always pretty high up, but compared to all the other random numbers, he is important. People know who he is. Yeah, and it makes his uh, role in the story a little bit more impactful. Um, it also provides a very convenient explanation for why he was recruited to the Mephi. So 
Um, I think it, I think his role as builder of the integral is actually um, it. I don't know. I would say it almost saved the story, right? If he was just like a regular dude, like most of the novels afterwards um, present their protagonists, I think it would, I would have uh, thought differently of the novel. It's funny though that it's like he doesn't even seem to convey the fact that he's an important dude. Like you pick it up only through like the things that happen to him. Like it's not, that's not really like coming into play in terms of his own, like, what's well, not a monologue, his own journal, journaling. Yeah, he doesn't have any type of like, he's not pretentious at all. He's not saying how he's better than any other numbers or anybody else in society. But you do kind of pick up that. It was just, I guess, authentic to someone who would live in that society that he doesn't even put it together that maybe I is signaling, singling him out for a reason. Right. No, and I mean, I, I, I kind of look at it. We were talking a lot last week about like what other thing other than love, other than lust, other than a woman could bring somebody to this like spiral down the hole and like into this rebellious state. I think the one thing to Sam's point that kind of saved the book and made it a lot more believable was his role in society. And if he wasn't the builder of the integral, it would not only make him less important as somebody to convert, but it would make the end of the story and his conversation with the benefactor and all the things that happen afterwards also less important and make less sense. So that small detail, I think, made a huge impact on the book. Even though it's not specifically talked about at all. I mean, it's just not, he doesn't present himself that way. You just have to pick it up, I guess. Yeah, and you get a sense from, like, you know, the comparison I'm making is like, um, you know, the main character in Player Piano, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, is an engineer. Um, in 1984, it's a middle manager, right? Um, and um, in, in Brave New World, I believe it's just a regular person um, with not... Uh, a you know a special career and those are you know those are the the middle class images of whatever that society is but in this particular case he's the chief engineer for the you know the grand national mission that's like an important role and obviously that's kind of swept under the rug with the ideology of the united states you know he's supposed to be one of of many right um a, a uh, rational copy of his neighbor but um, through the novel, his role as the the chief engineer of the interval makes the story move, and it make not only like like I feel like if he wasn't that, then we would be dealing with a situation in which um, the the recruitment of him to the Mephi would make no sense at all, right? It would be purely romantic, and then um, we would also be dealing with an issue with like um, kind of a a complete misrecognition of what you know, like even though the Mephi's plan to take over the integral and do whatever with it was not um felt fantastical in a way it would have felt like lit- like actually impossible if they didn't have somebody connected to it in some right yeah i agree that it wouldn't be possible although that scene i think was probably the most frustrating for me like when they were supposed to shut the doors at noon and everybody goes into the uh, everybody goes into the cafeteria, I thought they were gonna like take over the base in the one state. I didn't realize that pe- like all these people are in the rocket, like everybody's in the rocket while this is happening, and then they're like shooting up and then they're coming back down, 
And I was just like, what the hell is happening? That was probably the most frustrating scene for me. I had the same thought. Like I, I, as you, Troy, like I thought the exact same thing and I was so confused when I realized they're on the spaceship. But I guess maybe in uh, 1917 or whatever, they had really different ideas about rocket ships than we do. Um, yeah, because we're not, we're not dumb bitches who don't know about rocket ships. We, right. You know. We got all we're kinds moderns. of rockets. Yeah. I fucking no. shoot off a rocket in my backyard. I don't actually have a backyard. In the parking lot right now. No, but I mean, just into your point, Troy, it made me even more confused at that point in the book where I wasn't really sure, even going into it, what exactly they were trying to do. I mean, we knew that they needed the rocket, but why? I had questions as to, at first I thought, okay, they're going to use like the blasters of the rocket to destroy the wall or like kill a bunch of people or destroy part of this one state. And then, you know, it's explaining how they're going to take the rocket and leave with it. And I'm like, okay. But then all of a sudden they're all in the rocket together. Like I thought they were all going to go for like a lunch break and then like commandeer the rocket, but they're in the rocket, the rocket's blasting off and then coming back down to earth and then blasting off again and all this stuff. And it just made it really convoluted to follow what was actually trying to be said and like what the storyline was trying to get to. And it was like, okay, I'm really not sure what the hell is going on right now. Yeah. For the rocket, I think that, our image obviously is a space shuttle there's a couple people in it and that's why i thought that they would like they'd all be on the ground where the launch site is and then they would leave i guess their imagining of it is like a skyscraper sized building flying into space because like apparently the entirety of the warehouse and the production is happening on the ship while it's flying which is just comical right which, I mean, I guess is just something to be taken from the time period that it's written in. You know, it's just our perception of rockets and how things are done today is not necessarily the light that the book's written in. Um, and I guess hindsight being twenty twenty, I think if it was rewritten in a sense, like, I just picture it more of like, okay, the rocket's on the ground and the noontime hour comes. And before this whole thing happens, before they launch the rocket, people are going to like go to lunch because that's their scheduled hour to do it. And that's when they're going to like do this massive takeover as opposed to like he's thinking of it as the rockets in the air. It's this like skyscraper, like you said, building that has all these compartments and they're going to lunch in the building, but they're going to lock them in there and then take over the rocket ship, which just. Again, it just added more confusion to the story and like it, it was it didn't seem to have a linear way of getting across it. It was just like, OK, we're not really sure what we're doing with the rocket and we're not really sure why we're on it. But this is what's happening. Yeah, I think I also find it funny that you're taking a spaceship into space for the first time. Incredibly exciting. But it's like, oh, it's 12 o'clock. We better go have lunch. <laughs> like, is not, isn't everybody going to be all hands on deck for this? Is this not a momentous, like, the singular event for all of society? But I guess they are regimented by their little booklet. Right. Yeah, but it's like, it doesn't seem plausible. You know, like, even the most fervent, um, you know, servile population would have its own holidays. Like, we haven't ever experienced something like that. And it's hard for me to believe that, like, I guess it's it felt like um, Zimyatin didn't register the ridiculousness of the plan. 
I think I just think for him this book was more about conveying a few ideas he has than about anything else. Like he was single minded in it and the plot was just like a secondary thing that he was like, oh fuck. Which is what makes it not like not the best novel. Well, yeah, it's not a is not a good novel. I think it's like historically significant. It's extremely creative. It's groundbreaking. It's interesting. Um, but it's as a novel, it's not very good. I don't find it particularly engaging or um, I, I can appreciate what it is and what it developed into with other novels and other authors that may have been more well polished. But I didn't find the story as a whole particularly engaging. It just did a lot of the parts didn't make sense, even even looking through that scope. I can understand, okay, it's a regimented society, the rocket's on the ground, and we're going to go for lunchtime, and then we're going to take the rocket over. This huge monumental event of like everything that would go into the benefactor planning the integral launching you would think would be timed around not having to take an hour lunch break, right? Like it just, there's too many holes in it that just get me lost in um, what could have been the story and what actually was written as the story. And I just don't, I don't find it a particularly well-written novel and I don't find it particularly engaging, although I do appreciate a lot of the parts of it and what the theory behind it was. When it hits though, it hits like at the end, the ending, I feel like, really saved it i liked the book because of the ending i'm you also used to or the one that sticks out most to me is 1984 where it spoiler alert if you guys have not read it where uh it's just bitterness and cynicism where he's killed at the end and he's like oh i will i love the one state i've overcome my disdain and my objection to the one state whereas this i feel like is a better ending well it's good that's just a two separate different directions for it because he's reconciled to the state like he wants to rebel but he is brought back by force into the like graceful tyranny of the benefactor which is just very fitting like it i don't know seems like it comes with a little bow on top which is cannot be said for the rest of the novel no the the ending was comprehensible and i think like as far as plot consistency goes, we get more consistency out of the protagonist than we do out of his environment. Because, um, like, even like the election scene, right, where I three thirty raises her hand in disagreement against the the benefactor. Like in any totalitarian regime, I three thirty is dead. There is no escape in a public situation in which you are raising your hand against the supreme leader right like that's not a thing um but somehow there's a you know a complete like uh i don't know fucking pathology pathologistic um expression in the crowd and she gets lost in it which is ridiculous but as far as the d503 is concerned his psychological development is um believable and that's why the ending of the story is compelling and Although, Troy, I do disagree with you. I don't think that, I really don't think that D-503 was forced to be that way. He chose, he chose to cure himself of imagination, I guess. I don't know what your translation was, but uh, of the sickness that he had. It was a choice he, he made, not that it was necessarily forced upon him. No, you're right. Yeah, he wasn't forced into the machine the way that winston in 1984 is like forced into room 101 uh 
Yeah. With the cage of rats, my dude. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Did you guys like 1984? I didn't really I lo- like it. I loved it. It's one of my favorite books, honestly. I was I impressed. I hear anybody who doesn't like it is a bitch, so... Well, dude, I have been, I've been known to be a bitch. Uh, that's <laughs> that, true. That explains everything. Confirmed. I, I think I was just disappointed because it's so different from his other books. Oh, is it? I haven't read his other books, so I don't Would know. Would you do an Orwell unit? Because he really is like a... Animal Farm is great. Uh, yeah. I, like, <laughs> Down and Out in Paris... <laughs> I he's like, like oh, Wiggins Pier. Oh, he's like, he's the fucking edgy, you know, deep cut guy. Dude, Orwell. I don't think the road to Wiggins Pier is a deep, is edgy or deep. What? That's not a novel. But you know what I mean? Like the the Burmese days. You've read that. I feel like we've talked about that, Sam. I haven't read it, but I want to. Oh, all right. Well, this is a boring conversation, but we should do an Orwell unit at some point. We, sh- we should do an Orwell unit. I'd be down for that. I have a collection of his essays that I sent you all a picture of where it's uh, all art is propaganda. It's good. He's a good essayist, but Alex, you're right. He is he's just a grumpy dick. <laughs> Orwell? Dude. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he, he's like, he, he had so, so many like fucked up things happen to him that like by the time he got to writing his final two, like I just, it seems like he was so like depressed and like dejected. You know what I mean? Like his wife died. Yeah. He got fucked over by the Stalinists. At that point, I think all the leftists in England hated him for snitching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if they knew he snitched at the time, but like, no, he was uh, he, but he had a, a strong sense of English identity and English patriotism, which didn't jive with um, the Stalinists. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that Orwell was just like I, I spent a whole day at work like a year ago just reading his essays because like. To Kill an Elephant is probably, I think it's the best essay I've ever read. Damn, I should, like, uh, that is a fucking classic. I should revisit. Politics in the it, English language is also incredibly good. Dude, so fucking good. Oh, man. I mean, he is like a killer essayist and, um, and a great commentator on on life. I think that the your criticism of 1984 kind of stands, Alex, in the sense that I... I suspect, I mean, because I've only read his essays in 1984, that um, if I were to read his earlier novels, I would be more impressed by, because Orwell is such a good observer of the of the social life of his of of that he exists in. You know, that's like his that's his strength, and so you know when he is projecting him self onto another world it doesn't translate nearly as well because he's yeah it's jarring i mean i think coming up for air i think you guys would really like it's just like a little like british slice of life kind of uh i don't know it's charming it's about a dude who just likes to fucking fish um isn't that what we all want though i, I you know you, you you either want to fish or you want to grill that's the two kinds of guys you can do <laughs> oh shit um cool guys do we have any other, I wanted to, yeah. So the last thing I wanted to do is kind of the conversation we're going on, which is like, okay, so we happened and then brave new world happened and then 1984 happened and then player piano happened. And then, and, and then Anthem happened. I think that's the order. So what do we think of the, the legacy of we, what do we think of what the, cause this is a very specific kind of novel that was recreated multiple times. And is revered. It is considered like the highest form of literature in uh, in many 
a simp circle. So what uh, <laughs> what do we think of that? I can completely understand it. I mean, for me, reading through it, I can see a lot of the things that were engaging about the story, a lot of the the ideas that were presented and the way that it was written. I can see how it was revolutionary for the style of writing, but I also can see how it's it's what was developed from it, the authors that wrote books beyond it were much more polished and what they did with it was probably better work as a whole but i also can just respect where it is and the fact that it was the first of its kind and it developed a legacy from how it was written the engaging parts were engaging enough to develop all these things beyond it that may have surpassed it in a lot of ways but couldn't replace it respect troy what do you think um i definitely see why it was or i agree that it's massively influential um and a lot of tropes that people later take on come from this and there's just like respect when you're the first person that gets to it even though the plot is kind of haphazard and all over the place um uh, i feel like certain aspects of it like the primitive going back to nature and rejecting the well i guess the pleasure wasn't as uh prevalent in this but in Brave New World i feel like that aspect was done better in 1984 the like brutal dark side of totalitarianism was done better the thing that i really got out of this was the stuff that you and i quoted sam the like religious aspect of it i was like huh that's a take on totalitarianism that i haven't really considered before it definitely seems older than the other ones and it was written before the world war ii era dictator so it makes sense it's cool it's unique it's almost like watching an old movie like a movie from the 1930s or the 1940s, you just kind of got to give them some leeway because, you know, certain camera techniques hadn't been invented yet and some of the things they were inventing them. So it's a it's a forerunner for a lot of things. I like it, but I don't think it's a great book. I wouldn't place it as like the best ever or something that, yeah, these other groups all acclaim. So cut them some slack. Um, Alex, what do you think? I mean, I don't I can't say I think much beyond what the what the two guys have just said. I don't I mean, I'm surprised at hearing so much about it cuz I've never heard of it my entire life until like what last month when we decided to read it. Um so it's definitely not something that's like in like the popular culture, but like as like, you know, obviously researching it a bit, it's come up more in terms of its influence, but like a lot of its influence seems to be prior to like 1950. Or six, you know, you know what I mean. Like, it doesn't seem to have retained a lot of that in the modern day, from what I can tell. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, I, it's hard to, um, as we move farther and farther away from the time of the Soviet Union and the time of uh, of the uh, the Third Reich. You know, we, I feel like this particular mode of writing becomes a little bit more historical and a little less like, uh, you know, a comment on how we exist. Um, not entirely absent in the sense that we have this uh, overlo- this looming state apparatus um, that won't let us out of our own fucking homes these days. But um, the, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that the, this story, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, like it's, you know, like you said, Troy, 
the they Zemyatin is developing techniques that are going to be refined later. And though they're refined later, it doesn't mean that the original invention of the technique should be detracted from. And um, you know, Zemyatin's choice of using the lover as a uh, as a, a pivotal character point, like um, a, a pivotal character um, center in which to navigate the story um, by using the the you know the privileged, if you will, right? Like the not it doesn't have to be you know in in uh, Wee's case it's the integral builder, but in general it's you know somebody who has some sense of authority but is not the master of society that is the the center of the story um by by developing these these themes uh he was able to to set the stage for some of the you know like the most formative books in western literature like i'm not going to go so far because i don't think 1984 i think 1984 is really good and i think brave new world is really good but is it you know, part of the canon of Western literature, I think that's debatable. But is it something that you read when you're 17 years old and you feel like you have your mind blown? A hundred percent. Like that is like those are the kinds of things you read and that like that change your life. You know, is how it feels. So I um I don't think the impact of we can be understated in that regard. Well said, man. And I'm only like four whiskeys in, my dude. So <laughs> that's why it was well said, man. You just, to wet, you just needed to wet your whistle. A little you're bit. in the sweet spot right now. Give it another two, and you're going to be like threatening to fight us. We're going to be doing <laughs> plays again. You just got to ride the wave. You drink enough to get to the top of it, but not too much that it cracks. And that's where mm-hmm. you're at right now. I'm at I'm at fucking like Saddam Hussein level drunk right now. So that, that's where we. I won't know until uh, I watch the HBO special. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. Um, thank you for listening to well, the literal. Fiction let's tell them what book. we're reading next time. Dude. No, we're not reading anything next time. We do not. We're not um, about books anymore. Books are yeah. trash. Um, books are canceled. So, yeah. um, well, Alex, you tell me what we're reading. I forget what we're reading. Okay. <laughs> For the next three weeks, we're going to be reading stories from Red Star Tales, the century of Russian and Soviet science fiction by, by Yvonne Howell, E.D. Uh, it's a book apparently that was put out through Kickstarter. It's a collection of Soviet science, short science fiction stories. We're going to start during, with science fiction stories written during the Revolutionary Era, and we're going to read... One evening in twenty two seventeen by Nikolai Fyodorov. Hope I pronounced that right. And that apparently is supposed to be a, a forerunner to uh, to we right. That was the uh, yeah. It's so in the introduction of um, Red Star Tales, it specifically says that uh, we would later expand on some of the themes, uh, like ten years after the fact, that were discussed in one e- evening in twenty two seventeen. So. We can draw our own conclusions about that when we read it, but I thought that was a good starting point. Should be cool. Fuck yeah, dude. All right, so we're going to be reading that, and um, so for the next three weeks, we're going to be doing the short stories from Red Star Tales um, for logistical reasons, and then um, we're going to be moving into the Japanese literature unit, which I'm very excited about and um i hope we're going to be able to include some uh yukiya mishima into our um our syllabus which i'm we super stoked man. about we have to we really um, just have to 
I will read uh, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea again, because I, I think that's an excellent novel, um, but I am also welcome to some of his other novels uh, in addition to that. So um, so we're going to keep you updated on on, uh, on that unit coming up. It'll be very exciting, but thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to leave a voicemail, once again, you can leave a voicemail on our book nerd hotline. Um, you can call the number one nine seven eight two five five three four zero four. Have a good night, everybody. Bye. Not all. Bye.